Simon Tumir podcast. I'm very lucky to be joined today by accordionist, broadcaster and shinty player, Gary Innes. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting the show, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Simon Tumir. Hi Gary. How are you doing Simon? Excellent. Now, you have had an amazing career doing so many different things. When I was preparing this podcast, I wasn't sure where to start. So let me first congratulate you <laughs> on your latest album, Imminent. Was this album long in the making? To be honest, it wasn't too long in the making. I had a 12 and a half year kind of um, wait between the first one in 2005, How's the Crack, and Era, when I took that out in 2017. And so I had all this kind of pot of material that we didn't use with Manon for the, the, the last album. And I had all these songs and tunes and um, I called it imminent because of the imminent arrival of our, our little one. We're just a, a week or so away now from the arrival of our, our firstborn. So I had I kind of thought to myself, you know, we have all these, have all these tunes and songs and once the wee one comes along, I'm, my time's going to be taken up in a different way and... I'm probably not going to get the time to, to put these down. So it was actually quite a quick process. I kind of sat, scribbled them all down, worked away on them for about a month, and I went down to Grand's house, um, spoke to Angus Lyon, went down for three days, and wrote the rest of the album, came back up, got all my pals in, and recorded it, and, and here we are. That's amazing. So, well, let's go back to the beginning. You were brought up in Spain Bridge in the Highlands. That's right. Was there folk music played in your house? My dad played the accordion, he could play about four or five Gaelic waltzes and I always remember hearing him downstairs playing at the odd party that was happening in the house and, you know, it sounds like a kind of cliche but genuinely I was down sitting on top of the stairs and uh, a, a lad went to the toilet in the party, a, a local guy, Alec, and he came back down and said to mum and dad, oh, Gary's sitting at the top of the stairs, so mum kind of went and chased me back to bed. Uh, the next day I was saying to my dad, I heard you playing accordion and dad said, would you like to learn accordion? I would love to. So that was it, and the first accordion my dad had is a wee 12 bass Honor accordion, and he still had it up the loft, so he took it down, and that was really how it all started, and he taught me the five tunes that he knew, and then I started going to lessons, so it kind of, the rest is history, as they say. And uh, who was your teacher? It was a lad called Johnny Allen, and he lived four or five doors along, and Johnny was self-taught, he was from Airdrie, and his family were all grown up in the village as well, Johnny was in the 60s. And um, yeah, he used to come around every Wednesday at five o'clock. He never took a single penny for lessons. And that was it really. Mum and dad used to buy him nice Christmas presents and birthday presents, oh. but he would never accept a penny for the lessons. Fantastic. And um, so what was the first tune you learned? Oh, well, the, the first tune that I can remember was The Waters of Kyle's Q. Um, it was in C, or my dad taught me in C, obviously, no black notes. So... <laughs> <laughs> so A bonny, bonny tune. Yeah. yeah, it's a lovely song as well. The Waters of Kyle's Q. It's an old song as well. So he um, he used to sing away and play it, and I would try and play, and he would sing. So it was great fun. Oh, fantastic! And uh, so, where did you get your first experience of performing? The first time I can remember performing, I was nine, and I joined a band called Tarmigan. 
there was a, a lad in the village in his 30s, John McNichol, and he used to take us for keyboard and his brother Duncan taught us the bagpipes, or chanter as it were, at that point, and I went to Johnny for accordion lessons. But there was a few teenagers in the village that were learning guitars and um, pipes and, and drums and bass. So John had a band called Tarmigan. Because he loved Capricaley, he picked another <laughs> band, another bird in Scotland. So it was great. I, I was nine and basically I was using my left hand with one finger and three fingers as the card on the right hand. And we played in the in Corn Halls in Oban. There was kind of like a battle of the bands thing for, for high school bands and stuff. And John took us down and we performed. And that's the first time that I remember properly performing in public. So it was great fun. And was there a point when you, when you kind of realised that you wanted to be a musician? Oh, always. From the very from the very start, I realised that I, or, you know, I always had this longing and real desire to be a musician. And it was really funny because when I grew up, I you know told my mum and dad in the start I want to play the box, want to play the accordion, and there was a bit of resistance there. My dad was always very good with it, and he was just like, well, you know, let's see how you got on. But mum was very much, no, you'll you'll get a job or a trade behind you, and then if you want to pursue music, that's fine. But you know, one day you might have a family, and you'll need to you rely on having some kind of you know apprenticeship or you know a trade behind you. And, and that was it, but I, you know, so funny, I really fought against that. I was like, no, I want to play music, I want to play music. So I was the same, my relatives used to say that, oh, you could work in a record shop. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll always find something, but uh, it, was, it was literally, you know, when I look back, that was definitely a catalyst to help me really sort of push and, you know, probably push myself even harder than probably some, because I wanted to prove to my mum and dad that I could do this. And what, I mean, what sort of styles were you learning? Because obviously on the, the new Eminent album, you've got that bit that's uh, it's quite continental. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think growing up in the West Coast, you're basically sort of submerged in West Coast style music. And my dad loved accordion fiddle club. So until I was about 14, 15, my real outlet in traditional music on the accordion was at the accordion fiddle clubs. So it wasn't until the face came to La Cabra and I started learning about some of the other musicians and other styles. I started listening to Wolfstones, Cabricaley, Silly Wizards and, and the likes, you know, and I started listening to the Donald Shaw's, Phil Cunningham's and the, the likes of those accordion players and the styles and where they were taking it that obviously my ears and mind were opened up to this. It doesn't have to be Bobby McLeod, you know, kind uh, of style or yeah. Fergie MacDonald. You, there is another world out there. And so at that point... In many ways, I think I kind of turned my back on... Well, I didn't think. I definitely turned my back on the sort of Scottish dance band scene because I realised that I wanted to play like this. This was a cool thing, and this is what you got to travel playing. And it's quite... It's really funny how things have turned out, you know, with Take the Floor now, that I'm now going back to the dance band thing, and I absolutely love it again. And you have this, you know, real kind of sense of... At the start again, and listening to all these bands and getting to play these bands on the radio that you grew up listening to, John Ellis, Bobby McLeod, and, and the likes. But you must be working hard because, I mean, whether it's Phil Cunningham or Don Shaw or Bobby McLeod, there's a, a very high degree of technique. Yeah, well, I suppose that just comes down to practice, doesn't it? And you learning tunes or writing tunes the way you want to play so them. So, did you or... go on to have another? teacher after Johnny then yeah. working with you on that style of stuff after Johnny Allen I went to a country singer called Paula McCaskill who was a great accordion player but she still makes her living singing country music around Scotland <laughs> absolutely a, a tremendous lady altogether and then from Paula I went to an Irish 
man called Paddy Neary, and he was more the sort of classical continental music and more the competitive side of accordion playing. So your Perth competitions and your your you know all Scotland champions and yeah. things. But to be honest, I hated that. I hated the competitive edge of it, and I went into a couple of competitions and I, I did pretty well, but um, I just didn't like it. I hated the. The, the technical side of it, there was no real musical side, you know, as far as I was concerned. So I went to Paddy for about a year and a half and then went to Neil Sinclair and Connell, who is the father of Sheila Sinclair, who oh, right, yeah. um, is a great box player and, and pianist and accompanist. And, um, and Neil, again, took me back to sort of the West Coast roots and traditions and pipe marches and stuff till I was about 16, 17, and which then I went to Thurso and did an HNC in music with Bobby Coggle and Nadie Harper and the like. So... Uh, and that was the last time that I had any tuition, but it was, yeah, that was a great time in my life too. Oh, 17, first time away from home and living up in Thurso for a year, it was great. Oh, that's amazing. Do you remember the first album you bought with your own money? With my own mon money, I bought Unleashed by Wolfstone, uh, it came out in 1994. And I remember my granny took me down to Fort William, I bought it in J.K. Ness's, or the Granite House as it's known in Fort William. And I can't remember how much I bought it for, but it was a cassette and I stuck it on, and Cleveland Park was the, the opening track, uh, and I was just like, oh my goodness, listen to that. And my granny was a big Will Starr fan, and she was like, and I always remember she said, well, it's no Jacqueline Walsh, Gary. <laughs> and I was like, no, gran, it's not. Yeah, and just listening to that album, you know, obviously the star, and it was just great, and then of course into the... The great, great memories and the look of kind of my granny just horrified. <laughs> so uh, at this time you were you were also playing shinty, were you? I was, yeah. yeah. I mean, we grew up in the village. To be honest, from four or five, the first thing you were given sports-wise was a, a shinty stick. There was no football or any other sport in the village, so if you didn't play shinty, you didn't play team sport. So really, um, it was a religion in the village. It really uh -huh. was. You you played in the primary school. And at the weekends you went up and watched the local team play and uh, or travel about to watch them. So it was great, really, really good. Did you ever worry about like hurting your hands? Do you know, because I played shinty from such a young age, I never worried about it. And I have had my thumb uh, broken and fingers broken and things, but you never really worried about it at the time. And I think because of that, that was the sort of key. If you did worry, you, you maybe wouldn't challenge as hard or go in you know, 100% committed, which that's when you picked up injuries. So I think if you didn't think about it and you just played the way you wanted to play and, you know, 100%, then, you know, injuries were very few and far between with the sport. So I was quite lucky that way. And was there a point where you noticed that you had a, a talent for that? For Shinty? Yeah. Well, I think in my younger years, in primary level, I was really rubbish. I wasn't very good at all. <laughs> but come high school, I was became the sort of high school captain of the team and things like that. And then the Fort William Under-17 captain. And then, you know, things kind of moved through from then. Um, joining the Scotland under 21 team at 17 I was quite young you know so things like that I suppose you kind of knew at that point that you were or you felt that you certainly were adequate enough mm -hmm. as the next player to, to be to hold that position so it was it was an amazing time you know I really look back and such fond memories of the sport so and the success at sort of on both levels because I mean you were you won the Carrot Cup five times you That's played right. you were Scotland captain yeah it, did you ever feel that uh, you had to choose between music and shinty? Well, quite often you were choosing on different levels. So, for instance, you were away travelling with a band. Um, or I, going back to my early 20s, I was just 
gigging really at weddings, Kayleys, pubs, you know, there was very few concerts at that point. So I was making a living playing music, but you were just running about the country playing at people's parties. So you used to get your shinty on a Saturday and then leave and drive to wherever and then throw up the PA and play. But then as Manon started in 2010, the dynamic changed within, for me personally, within, I couldn't play the sport as much anymore because there were sound checks and there were international tours and travels and things. So it became a little bit more difficult. I mean, shinty, it's really funny. People ask me about the you know, do you think you're better at music or at shinty? And in in the sort of the grand scheme of it, I was definitely better at shinty than I am at music, you know, at being at the sort of top level, for okay. sure. Um, but my passion, my love was always music. So shinty never, ever took over from music. There was, if there was a, a gig or there was a tour, there was something, I never didn't do it because of, of that. But on the flip side... I spent £320 getting a rib back from Lewis one day to play in the Kavanaugh Cup semi-final <laughs> at 6 o'clock in the morning. So things like that, you, you spent out your own money just to get back uh, because you just didn't want to miss out on, on those massive occasions or let your teammates down too. So there was definitely a balancing act. But I finished playing the sport when I was 32, 33 years old. I'm now 38. I was 33 when I finished playing. And it probably came at a really natural, nice time I was in and out, I was playing three, four, five games a year, which was nothing. But the club dynamic had changed as well. We had gone down a division, we weren't playing at the highest level anymore. And so there was lots of young players coming through, so it felt nice to be able to pass on some of that kind of knowledge and experience you had, but you weren't also playing at the very highest level anymore. So, um, And plus the legs. There was all these 18, 19-year-olds <laughs> running, running by you like you were a Calmac ferry, you know? So <laughs> naturally it probably came at a good time. So, uh, what was the first album you made then? The first album, well, the first time I ever recorded was, now, what was it called? I think it was just called Lochaber. And it was Nick Turner from Watercolour, married to Marianne Kennedy. Um, and they've got Watercolour Studios. Well, when Nick moved up, he had a place called the Capricale in Balahulish. And my dad drove me down and I ended up, there was a hole in the wall and it was a January night. And honest to goodness, it was like driven snow and everything. It was freezing. And he he recorded me playing like four or five different tracks and then mashed them up together because basically after about sixteen or thirty two bars my fingers would cramp up and it was just too cold so it was it was very very funny that was my first taste of recording but the first album I ever did was back in I recorded in two thousand and four and it was called How to Crack I was twenty three years old and uh, it was in the Skipnish label and Andrew and Angus they recorded two of their own albums. And they came to me and said, would I like to record an album on their label? So I was very I was grateful of that. I the first track on that album. Oh, is that right? The, uh, wee, the wee purple fellow? Yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah. Well, that's a story in itself, the, the wee purple fella. I, I remember when I came to Glasgow and... So cause people quite often ask how, how the music thing started for you in Glasgow. And I came down, I was working as a labourer in Campus Lang for a year and a half. And with a... I was building, helping build the new Speenbridge Primary School. Um, I went to Kilmanevig Primary and the Speenbridge actually got its own school built in the, the heart of the village called Speenbridge Primary School now. Uh -huh. So I was helping the brickies. I was working this saw every day. They used to give me the, the measurements and I used to pull the, down this massive blade uh, without any guards or protection. <laughs> Cut down all the measurements, go and hand them to the brickies for a company called Gleason. Well, I asked for a transfer when I was 21 um, to Campus Lang to come and move and play music in Glasgow. So that's what I did. Uh, so for a year and a half, I worked out there in, in Campus Lang, and it was great, great fun. 
But in the meantime, I went out to Glasgow Airport, and I don't know if you remember, but you know, business cards are quite easy to come by, but you used to get them made in the airport, and if you spent £30, you could make 500 but you used to use a rollerball. So you put your money in, and you used to roll it, and I'd click Enter, G, rollerball over to A, A, and then I had a wee treble clef on it. And over about four or five months, I went around every single pub and club in Glasgow and handed out these business cards. And slowly the phone started ringing, and... And I started going out all the sessions and meeting musicians and, and that was kind of my story. I didn't do the RCS, I didn't really know anybody, but I came down with a purpose, you know, trying to, trying to meet people and trying to do gigs and, uh, and that was it. And it took me about a year and a half to get enough work that I could give up the day job as it were. And then on June the 1st, 2003, I became self-employed and that was, uh, that was the start of it really. That's so. amazing. And when you went to make this uh, album, the first, the first proper yeah. album. Did you have a sound in mind? Did you know what you were trying to make? I don't think I did really. I mean, I knew I knew the sound that I wanted, but it was more just playing tunes with my pals, you know, and it was playing tunes that I really liked and or tunes that I'd written at that point. And um, yeah, I mean, definitely a sound in mind, but even looking back, I don't think I quite get the sound that I was after, but what he did get was, you know, it's, it's kind of such a mashup that you listen to that album, you listen to one track, and you listen to the next, and it's so different. And you listen to the next one, it's so different again. It's it's kind of like a compilation album, really. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, one of the tracks. So if you think back, now this is this is your kind of big break in many ways, and you've got people, you know, investing their money and time into you to make an album. And there was a song, Orn to Kate, or a song for Kate that Kathleen. Um, Kathleen Graham sang on it and I remember listening to Kathleen sing this song this Gaelic song and her neighbour had written it and it's an absolutely gorgeous song and unfortunately her neighbour's daughter had passed away who was the same age as Kathleen when they were growing up and she sang, she sang this song she wrote this song um, Hammy Dooley he was opening I Am Sorry and it was all about her loss through the different seasons and I remember listening to this song and thinking just it's absolutely gorgeous and it had never been recorded so I asked Kathleen would she sing it on the album and she said yeah so she asked her neighbour, her neighbour said she would love to have it recorded. So on my solo album, there is a song with Kathleen Graham singing, playing Clarissa, and Donald Shaw is playing a wee bit of keys in it, and I'm not even on it, because it was so beautiful, and I just thought, that is just so nice. Uh, I didn't want to spoil it, or to put a box well, line I mean, over it. obviously showing your maturity in the position. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I think it's very funny that you, you're given a solo album, there's, there's one full track in it, I'm not even on. It does happen, though, sometimes you just, like, you've heard it so much, and you've all over the rest of the album, the last thing you want is more of you. That's right, I just give someone else their moment, you know. That's right. So you said that in 2010 you formed Manran. Why did you form Manran? Well, I suppose musically, going back to, I was running about um, playing at pubs and clubs and weddings, and we had a, a few bands, the Highland Soap Dodgers, um, <laughs> the, we went to Italy, um, the Darien Project, you know, we played in Lorient a number of times as well. But again, I was using pals, but there was no real kind of sense of we were a band, you know, I was putting out for festivals off the back of How's the Crack album, and people were either taking it or not, and when they were, I was putting together a group of pals that would try and emulate some of those sounds. In 2010, I remember, or for even two, the two years leading up to that, I remember kind of feeling a wee bit lost musically, thinking, I just, I really want to make a band that is, you know, playing kind of trad, kind of rocky music, but with Gaelic and English and with Highland pipes, and I love the Irish Ulian pipes. And I was thinking, there's nobody, there's no band in the market that has drum and bass 
with English and Gaelic Highland pipes and the Ulian pipes. So I spoke to my musical compadre, Mr. Ewan Henderson, and I, and I said this, look, this is what I would love to do. And he was like, yeah, I would love to do it as well. Love to be part of it. Great. So we went about, it was kind of like a big brother experiment, really. And, you know, there's no other band, I don't think, out there that's gone about this. We picked people we'd never even heard of. We didn't even know. And I just phoned them and said, listen, do you want to, do you want to be in a band? Uh, this is what I'm hoping to do. And, you know, this is like, or what we hope to do. But this is the sort of my own aspirations. And um, we ended up in a rehearsal room in Berkeley. And the first drummer... Um, couldn't even make the rehearsal. The first bass player came along um, for the first rehearsal, and you know wasn't wasn't into it. And we so then we went to two other people, and we ended up with Ross Saunders and Scott Mackay, who we hadn't met. They came, we met, we had a had a blast, and and off we went. So six months later, again thinking, how do you get up the pecking order a little bit quicker than you know waiting three four years before you start doing hip kilts and and all the likes, and it's like, why don't we try and be the first band of the 21st century to release a Gaelic song, and we can try and release it into the UK Top 40, you know, so the band was six months old, we had this song, um, and we had a few different songs, and I was saying to the lads, it'd be nice to have an original song, and Nori had La Ma there already, so I spoke to Callum Malcolm, and spoke to Phil Cunningham, and um, Stuart Hamilton at Castle Sound, and we all went down, and we just, we just kind of, they did their thing, their magic over the top of it, and we put out La Ma on the 17th of January, 2011. We had a Celtic Connection show. We launched it the day after after that, and um, instantly, I mean, I remember even launching it. It was so, so funny because, you know, this band, nobody would ever heard of for six months old. Um, we don't even really know each other, to be honest, properly at that point. We'd hardly even gigged. And the next thing, the one show's on the, the, the phone, um, Radio 2's on the phone, um, we did a kids concert in the Royal Concert Hall that morning and the next thing it was number 29 in the UK top 40 and of course you know we're looking now you know it's it's we're not saying it's not difficult to release a song to get into the the charts quite quickly because the numbers just aren't there anymore people are into streaming and things and I know that's changed recently with the charts but back then you had to buy the single and it was it was an amazing time. We were just sitting back, and there was television companies phoning, there was radios phoning, all the national press were in touch, and yeah, it was it was a remarkable thing. And of course, that really was a catalyst of the band. You know, that summer we played every major festival from Cambridge to you know Heb Celts and everything on the main stages, and uh, it, it was a great, great you know first year and great standing um, of for the band. Amazing, actually, and you've. Made uh, how many albums? Is that three albums. We've made we've album? made three albums. We're currently recording our fourth, which we're going to release for next year uh, for our ten year anniversary. So we've got a lot of big plans for that, which oh, we're looking amazing. forward to. That's amazing. And uh, do, you, do you have any favourite performances? Favourite performances, goodness, yeah. With, I mean, with the band. What? Yeah, I mean, thinking back, we've been so lucky. We we've done special performances for the L London Olympics. We've uh, we were in South Korea for kind of one off performances as well. We've. You know, tours of America were, were always great. The band are currently in Australia for a month. You know, I remember the first time I ever played Australia was, was incredible. But I think one of my favourite was we were very fortunate to be asked by Runwick to join them on their 40th anniversary um, show. And we were up in Muir of Ord in front of 20-odd thousand people. And um, that year, the BBC or BBC Alba did a documentary on us, A Year in the Life of Manron. And it can still be found on YouTube. And BBC Alba quite often put it out. And it's... It's a great wee insight into that time of our life as well. 
it was 2013 they'd filmed and into 2014. So they got us a little bit of Australia, a little bit of our American tour. They got us doing that performance and how we felt before we walked on and part of all that. And um, yeah, it was just great. Really, really, really nice. But that that whole time certainly is a is a is a lovely, lovely kind of look back into a time where we just it was just you know we really were on the crest of a wave and it was all moving forward really, really kind of positively. And of course, well, it never stopped there because in 2016 <laughs> you took over from the legendary Robbie Shepherd yeah. on Take the Floor. That was a really funny one. It was it was quite I mean very daunting to be honest. But the opportunity came around. I presented Travelling Folk um, a couple of times before that, and the same producer Jennifer Cruikshank had has, had asked me to present Take the Floor because um, Robbie's been holiday a couple of times, and I didn't manage unfortunately. So. I remember I was with my dad just for a day out and the call came and I actually could manage the, the following Wednesday. So I went through to Aberdeen and I was really nervous. I uh, did it and then Jennifer said, that was great, you know, we enjoyed that. And listen, how would you do, how would you manage next Wednesday? Again, Robbie's actually off for two weeks. We didn't want to put the pressure on you, but, you know, and obviously if you were terrible, we'd get somebody else. But if you didn't mind, would you come back next Wednesday? So I went back the following Wednesday and then they said, look, Robbie is looking to retire this year. He's, he's turning 80 He's looking at. He's hanging up his uh, headphones and his microphone, and he's looking to step back. We don't know what we want to do. We don't know how the show is going to go or what's going to happen, but we want to put a team of presenters together. We want. We're thinking about three or four, and we wondered if you would like to audition, go for a pilot episode, and maybe be one of the presenters. So I was obviously honoured. I was like, well, I would love to audition to be part of a team. You know, mm -hmm. I'm thinking if you're taking over for a guy who's been there for thirty five years. You know, if you're going to fly with the crows, you'll get shot with them. At least it's not just you. And again, I think that natural thing of you're playing music, that's your job. So you think that would be lovely. You might open up another avenue of people to come and, you know, watch your shows. But also, if they don't like you or they feel that you're ruining their favourite programme, they'll never come and see you. Even if they, you know, they might take a punt and they're like, oh, Gary, I hate him. He's, a, he's awful. He's killed Scottish dance music and take the floor. So the whole process I went in, I did the pilot episode and then I never heard for weeks and then Jennifer got in touch and said, look, um, we're delighted to say that we would like to offer you the post as one of the presenters. We can't talk to you about who the other presenters are at this point, but we let, but you're part of it. So of course I'm delighted, this is tremendous. And of course your brain's ticking, I wonder who else it is. And I knew a couple of pals who had been asked to go in for interviews and pilot episodes also. So I didn't get in touch with them in case they'd heard good news or bad news. I just thought, well, we'll leave it. And then they asked me to come for a meeting to meet the team. And I went into a room and it was just myself. And I kind of looked around and I said, where are the, where are the rest? And they said, it's just you. And I'm like, oh no. And then, and then I really, I, yeah, I did. I did lose sleep about it. I was thinking, this is a wonderful opportunity, but it really could end badly, you know. Did you, uh, did you, have, an, did you have to think about an approach to it? Because obviously you're not Robbie, you're somebody else. Did you... Look at different ways to do it. Do you know, because very much I wasn't Robbie and I wasn't, I didn't have the East Coast or the Doric background, then I just went in very much as myself and thought, look, this is, this is me and this is what I'm going to do. And people ask, what about your presenting style? And it's like, what do you mean a style? <laughs> you don't have a style. You just, you just go in and do things how you think, you know, they, they could be done or how you think they, you want to blether to people. And that was really what I did. Um, thankfully, I mean, obviously at the start, you, you inevitably, people hate change, you know, people do not like change, especially as you get older, as we know ourselves. So 
people in their 70s and 80s who have gone most of their life listening to one voice and yeah. one style and then all of a sudden you get this wee idiot coming up. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Take the Floor. How are you doing? I'm from the West Coast. and uh, Yeah, of, of course, you know, you, you're going to have your critics, but, you know, on the, on the whole, it was very, very positive and Touchwood it has been ever since. So, you know, we're here now two and a half years in. It's incredible how much time has passed and... You know the 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 other doors that's opened and the travels. I mean, we were in New York at Tartan Week last year for a full week with uh, Take the Floor, and we've been out to loads of islands. And what's been really nice, and you know, I mentioned to you earlier, was growing up through the Scottish Dance Band and the Accordion and Fiddle Club. I've got to meet all these guys that I met when I was ten, eleven, twelve. Um, you know, Lindsay Weirs and the yeah. you know all the Crookshanks and all the all the different ones, the the Blacks, the. Now, you know, just all the different families that, that have come through, you know, the, the McGlynns, for instance, from, you know, um, Loch Ilpid, you know, I remember watching old Fraser McGlynn and his sons, Kevin and Ryan and, and, and all that, but getting to, getting to interview them and listen to them and do programmes on their dad that, you know, I looked up to inspired to when I was younger. It's oh, just, it's tremendous. Nice, isn't it? Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I mean, we haven't mentioned that you, you, you were a firefighter for 15 years. <laughs> And you still volunteer as a first responder in Spain Bridge. I mean, you're obviously an active person. <laughs> I didn't like to sit about. <laughs> but you don't do these things without a sense of community and wanting to help people making a difference. You must enjoy giving. I do. I, I, I do. I get a huge sense of pride, I suppose, and... I just, I do, I really enjoy helping people. I do love that, you know, and it sounds like a cliche, but I, I get a lot personally from helping people and whether it be in music or just whatever in life and what hand with, you know, moving boxes, you know, <laughs> needing a lift. I just, I enjoy helping people. Um, I get a lot from that and yeah, the, the fire service, my dad was a watch manager for many years. So again, growing up, I just loved to be part of it and round about my dad and that sense of team and community and very much, you know, being in a band is very different to being at the side of a road, a, a major road accident, you know, with a group of lads who you have one, you know, major objective, you know, to get casually out safely or, and obviously, you know, that can end well and that can't end well, you know, sometimes and it's, but very much being part of a unit that um, you have a, a real goal in mind and sometimes that doesn't work out. The shinty's the same, the band's the same. You know, and I think my whole life I've been, you know, in an environment that you're all striving to, to do something positive. I suppose positive. You're, a, you're, a, you're a team player. Yeah, well, I, I think so, yeah, yeah. I think so. I do, I do enjoy being around that environment and with people that are kind of similar-mindedness of that as well, they'd like to, like to help. And now, of course, uh, you've mentioned it, your first child is not <laughs> yeah, far away. It's not, not far away. I've have been you, busy. Have you, have you thought about um, how... That is going to impact on your music? I think I've thought about how it's going to impact, but I think the proof is in the pudding, as they say. It's, it's really going to be difficult to, to know exactly how much it's going to impact until the wee one comes along. I mean, the band is so busy. We are away an awful lot. We're a lot of tours, a lot of travelling. Um, I look ahead to the end of the year, for instance, and I'm away for nearly six weeks in Germany with the band. And I think, how am I going to get on away from the wee one for, for six weeks? You know, how's Hannah going to get on um, with that as well? And I think we're just not going to know until we come along. But there are going to be sacrifices made for you know Hannah's self-employed. She's got her own company and she you know promotes music festivals and musicians and artists and things. And you know she's very much she is so supportive and she understands 
you know, that I have to go away and play and do my thing. But I also understand that she's got her own business to run and she's got wages to, to pay for other employees as well. So she needs to be able to do her thing. So there is going to be, again, back to that team, we're going to have to look at it and assess it and, and try and, you know, get family. You know, our, we both come from such supportive families, which are very, very fortunate, who will stand up to the, the, the mark and help us in any way they can. So... We'll, we'll definitely need their help along this mad journey too, but in terms of how it's going to impact, I just can't answer that just now because I just don't know. Oh, great. Well, it's one of the most exciting things that will ever happen to you anyway, I know that. Yeah, um, I'm so excited about it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great, Gary. Well, we're going to uh, finish this uh, podcast with a tune. <laughs>